Well, good morning, church. We are um, starting a new sermon series this, um, this Sunday. And before I get there, let me get a show of hands and ask you guys, how many of you like to travel? Raise your hands. How, how many of you like the experience of going to, to new places, uh, seeing new sights, uh, smelling fresh scents, tasting fresh food, uh, different food, uh, looking into different cultures, just experiencing uh, the, the variety uh, around the world? That's something I've enjoyed my entire life. Uh, I'm not from here, from the States, and so I, I've traveled as, as I've grew, grown up. And when I was 15 years old, my family, we took a, a, a wonderful trip, one once-in-a-lifetime trip, a two-week trip through Europe. Uh, we started in, in England, went to London, uh, drove down to Paris and France, uh, stopped by Italy, went to Rome, Florence, and Venice. Then we went to Brussels, Belgium. Then we went to Amsterdam and this other small little village in, in, in Holland. I don't remember the name because it was that small, but we got to see the windmill. And uh, just all over Europe, went to Munich, Germany. Uh, uh, the Swiss Alps was a, a highlight of the trip. We actually went up to the Swiss Alps and looked at this lake that's inside this bowl up top on the mountains. Just unbelievably be- um, beautiful. But I've listed a whole bunch of places for you, right? Uh, and, and I told you that the trip was two weeks long. And so one of the featured elements of this trip was it was rushed. Uh, it, it just happened so quickly. Uh, every, every one of these cities probably could have afforded the whole two-week span, but, but the trip was designed to just kind of give us a, a, a quick snapshot view. And as a matter of fact, a lot of the places that we went to, um, that's exactly what we did. The bus would pull into a city. Uh, we would step out of the bus. Uh, the tour director would tell us, hey, that's an important um, you know, monument. Take a picture. We'd take a picture back to the bus, and then we'd go to somewhere else. And then we go to another monument, we get out of the bus and they'd say, Hey, look, that's really important. Take a picture. We took a picture back in the bus and then went, 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 went back around. So why am I sharing that with you? Well, this morning we're beginning a sermon series that's, that's going to feature that element. We're, we're, we're going to be taking a bus tour through uh, a number of doctrines. Uh, and, and it's going to feel that way. Um, we're going to come up to them. We're going to take a picture, just kind of look at them, and then move on to the next uh, doctrine. And so we, we at LCC, we're part of a family of churches called Sovereign Grace Churches. And recently, uh, our denomination put together a, a, a little book um, called We Believe a Statement of Faith. And what's inside this book is a distillation of key Christian doctrines. Just, just some ideas about, about what the Bible says about this, what the Bible says about that. The important aspects of Christian faith that not only we all need to agree on, but we all need to come to believe because they serve as the building blocks for our lives. If, you, if you've been with us for the past couple of weeks, Pastor Keith has been taking us through this idea of building our lives on rock. As Jesus spoke to the people back in his day, he, ought, he presented to them the reality of life that you could build your life on the sand versus building your life on the rock. And so the continuation of that is going through this booklet. And on your way out uh, in the, in the um, Welcome Center, you can actually buy this booklet for, for $4. Uh, real quick read, uh, or you could uh, access it right now on the, uh, the church app. So it's available to you. Uh, this morning for free as well. Um, But what's our first topic for the day? What is our first topic in this series on doctrine? Well, we'll beginning with the scriptures. Now, why why do that? Why start with the scriptures? And in a study of doctrine and a study about what we have to come to believe about faith and doctrine, why start there? Well, uh, the answer is twofold. Uh, the easy answer is because that's the first item in the book. So we're just going to start there. But, but it makes sense to start in the scriptures because it is from the scriptures that we are going to populate everything else. We don't develop doctrine on our own. We don't sit around. Christians have have not really sat around in history thinking weird thoughts about God, thinking unique thoughts about God. When they've done that is when they've gotten in trouble. The scripture is what presents the foundation, the building blocks, the, the paradigm, the blueprints for what type of house, what type of life we are expected to build on the rock of Christ. So, Let's begin this morning with a study of the scriptures. And then I think the, the only other thing I'll say is, is 
We're trying to present these sermons um, not as seminary lectures. And so um, naturally, there is a whole lot that we're going to leave out. Um, there's a lot of details that are not going to be presented. We're, we're going to focus on, on maybe one or two ideas within these doctrines. And so we're expecting, by the way, that you guys would follow along and read these things. And if you have questions, come talk to us, write me an email, write us uh, on the pastoral team and, and, and an email. But we wanted to make this practical, really, really down to earth, uh, connect these ideas, uh, remove them from the abstract, ethereal, theoretical presentation of what these doctrines doctrines are and how they connect with Christian life. Um, why is the doctrine of scripture important? Uh, and so that's what we are going to seek to answer this morning. Before we do that, let's pray together. Father, we, um, we need Lord, only what you can give us. So father, we come asking for that Lord, uh, for this moment, Lord, we need you to speak father. We need your spirit to provide, um, the work that only he can do in our hearts and in our minds, Father. Fill us with a knowledge of you, Lord, for your purposes and for our good. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So what are we to know about the scriptures? What, what, what is important for us to, to come to terms about what the scriptures are, what they say, why they're relevant, uh, what are they made of? Uh, and the first thing is that the scriptures are God's special revelation. Um, every time you open up this book, every time you read the Bible, consider that you're opening a special act of God. And we, we see a passage in Genesis chapter 1 where early on we're introduced to a dynamic that God is a God who speaks. So from the very first verses in the Bible, the very first page in the Bible, we're introduced to this idea. Genesis chapter 1 verse 3, and God said... Let there be light. And there was light. Later on in the chapter, this idea is repeated and repeated and repeated. But in verse 27 or 26, rather, then God said, let us make man after our own likeness. In the following verse, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So the, the, the beginning engagement, the first dynamic we're introduced in scripture is that God is a God who speaks. God's very nature is that to reveal, to, to communicate, to present information. And, and, and the Bible begins with the basic assumption that not only does God speak, but his words accomplish his purpose. God speaks and his words accomplish his purpose. So in page seven of our statement of faith, we read the following sentence. Our eternal transcendent, all glorious God, who forever exists as father, son, and Holy Spirit is by his very nature, a communicative being. He both creates and governs through his words and has graciously revealed himself to humanity in order to commune with us. So it is critically important that we come to understand this point because this will reframe what you think about the Bible, what you think the Bible can do, and it will awaken in you a, a, an, an eager expectation to come and engage with it. This is why this is so important. So God is a God who speaks, but he does more than just exchange information. He, he, he does more when he speaks than just present ideas. When God speaks, he does. When God speaks, he does. There is action connected to God's speaking. And we see this all throughout the scriptures. The passage we just read, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. Psalm 33, verse 6, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. So we go from speaking light to speaking the heavens. Hebrews eleven three. by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of the Lord. Hebrews 1, chapter 3. So we go from light to the heavens to the universe. God, God speaks and things happen, but, but they don't just happen. They keep happening. 
His voice doesn't just leave his mouth, as it were, and, and, and just do what it did. It continues doing. Look at Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Speaking of Christ, who co-created the world with the Father, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now stick with me, because this is important. The words of God are connected to the acts of God. Theologians have, have given a fancy name to this called speech act theory. Greg Gallison in his book, Scripture and the People of God, help us, helps us understand this when he writes, Just as human beings do things with words, beyond asserting, right? People promise, people command, and so forth. Similarly, God does things with his words, Beyond asserting, God promises, God commands, and so on. So speech act theory emphasizes divine agency. In other words, God himself is the agent who communicates through his word. And God does more than merely state things, that is, make propositional statements. Timothy Ward concisely expresses the relationship between God and his word and scripture when he says, the words of the Bible are a significant aspect of God's action in his world. God does things with his word. Now, what does this have to do with the doctrine of scripture? We're studying the scriptures, not the doctrine of God. Well, it has everything to do with the doctrine of scriptures because when you understand what we just talked about, you, you'll want to read the Bible more. When you understand the nature of what's in here, because of the nature of who spoke it, you, you'll, 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 your mind will be blown. You, you'll approach this as something other than just a book. You'll approach it for what it is, the word of God. The same voice that spoke creation into existence is the same voice speaking to you when you read this book. As God's voice rang through the cosmos when he made all that exists, his voice continues to ring through the scriptures when you open this book. This is what you hold in your hands. This is what's tucked away somewhere in the memory bank of your phone. Not just letters or signals. The word of God. The key point I'm trying to make here is that scripture... It's more than ink on paper. When you interact with the Bible, you are interacting with something other than, 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 than the material composition of this book. The faux leather, the binding, the, 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 everything, the ink, the paper. The scriptures are not a collection of outdated and bizarre religious rituals, feel-good moral stories, quirky self-help strategies, or axioms about the meaning of life. The scriptures are not detached, esoteric, spiritual mumbo-jumbo meant only for sophisticated and highly spiritual people of the cloth. They're not that. They are the words of God himself revealing himself to all who have ears to listen. Now listen, the words of God, the Bible, they are not inert. They're not inactive. They're not flat, two-dimensional things that you see with you, your eyes. They, they are powerful. They are action waiting to happen. If God's voice continues to speak and everything God speaks accomplishes something and God continues to speak through his word, therefore, God is going to continue to do things through the words he has spoken. Unless you think I'm making that up. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, this, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now, what other book on the planet can do that? Have you ever read a book that can discern your heart? Have you ever read a book that has the capacity to tell you what you're thinking? To correct you, to inform you of, of, of what you're doing and what you should be doing, what you shouldn't be doing and what you should be doing. There's books that suggest those things, but there is one book that pierces our hearts, our psyche, our minds, that moves us, that is alive in power. 
And that book is this book. Why? Because it's the word of God. So this is what I mean when I say that God does things with his words. Or or, or more precisely, God intends to do something every time his scriptures are read. So on the foundational level, what exactly does God do in his scriptures? He does three things at least. The first is he reveals himself. The, the, The key goal of the word of God is to tell us who God is. What he is like. What his plans for the cosmos are. So he is the the principal character in the story of scripture. He, He is what the scriptures point to. He is what the scriptures are about. He is what the scriptures are for. The scriptures are not necessarily about us. They are about God first and foremost. So the Bible reveals who God is to us. But the second thing the Bible does is it reveals who we are. In the scripture, you will get a clear picture of who God is. That without the Bible, you are incapable of coming to a picture of knowing who God is. God's designed it this way. This is how he's chosen to disclose himself to humanity through his word. But he's also done something. He's also given us a a, a microscopic look into who we are. He reveals who we are. And he does so in, in really unique ways. He, he reveals the type of creature that we are. We are a type of creature who's created to listen to words. You ever wondered why God wrote a book? You ever wonder that? Why didn't God write a book? But like, couldn't God, you know, he could create stars. He could create a movie before the technology existed, Right? Why didn't he just make a movie? Like, you know, create a TikTok or something. Why why write a book? Well, the answer is because he wanted to write a book. Because there is something in the means of language that all of us are created to respond to. And so this is something that the Bible teaches us about ourselves. It reveals that we respond to voices, but it also reveals that there are other voices in creation other than the voice of God. And this is illustrated clearly in Genesis chapter 3, right? So Genesis chapter 1, it shows us this dynamic that God is a God who speaks. And when God speaks, things happen. But God's not the only voice in the garden. There is another voice. There's another influence that shows up in the, in, 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 in the presence of humanity, this creature we call, we call Satan, he shows up and he has a voice and he says things. And we'll, we'll, we'll look at this a little bit after, but, but, but notice how the Bible reveals things about God, but things about ourselves as well. That even, even after listening to the voice of God from God himself, Adam and Eve still can be influenced by an external voice that doesn't come from God. So as you go on and build your house on the rock of Christ, as you, as you look at sand and you look at rock and say, no, I'm going to go over here because this is, this is where the storms of life are going to be endured over here. You've got to recognize that the scriptures would say to you, be careful. Because there are other voices that you are susceptible to. Scripture informs us about our propensity to listen to God And to forget. So maybe this is one of the reasons why he wrote a book. So we could come, keep coming back to it. Keep coming and and, and being reminded on it. So as you go build your life on the rock, this key key bit of information for you to consider is is that you need two things. You need boundaries and you need blueprints. God speaks, but he's not the only voice. Therefore, scripture teaches us we need boundaries. Now, if I were to ask you to raise your hands, how many of you have a front door to your house? All of you would raise your hands, right? Now, if I were to ask you, what is the purpose of that front door? All of you would say, well, it's to keep people out, right? Naturally, that's what the front door is for. You, you have a front door and you lock it to keep people out. 
right? If there's people you don't want in your house, you close the door. You don't have to say anything. They don't come in, right? It's a boundary. But it's interesting that boundaries work both ways. Because that front door serves another, another purpose, not just keeping people out, but keeping people in. Really, Ronald? It's like, yeah, it's Father's Day. I've got four kids, and they're all little. And all of my doors have a latch on the top that I had to install because my kids have this propensity for some reason to want to run out into the street. For some reason, just open the door. Hey, there's, there's the world. Let me go visit the world. That's not good for them. So they need boundaries. We need boundaries. And also we need blueprints. You know, when you go about the project of building your house on the rock, and we take this concept of there being other voices that you're, you're um, uh, susceptible to, that you can be influenced by, it, se- it, 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 it seems reasonable to think that there are going to be voices telling you how to build your house. And in other words, it's not enough that you're building your house on the rock. It's not enough that you're building your house on the rock. If you build your house on the rock with sand, what's going to happen to that house? It, it's going to fall apart. So there's, there's specific materials, there's raw materials you are going to need to build your house on that rock. So the foundation is sure, but what you build on top of it also needs to, to, to be able to, to live on the foundation in such a way so that it is not tattered, it doesn't fall apart, it doesn't sink in. And that's the, the blueprints that we receive from the scriptures. Remember, building a house is a process. Right? Anyone remodel their house? Anyone build a house from scratch? Is is that a one-time thing? No, right? It's something that you do over and over. It's a process, right? And, and, And any architects, engineers, you know that part of that process is you keep going back to what? To the blueprints. Right? You keep going back to the blueprint. Okay, this angle over here, that doesn't look right. Um, let me change this. That's not how that works, right? You go and you change what you've built because the blueprints are, are what's true, are, are, are the guiding principle of whatever it is you are building. So some application questions on this point. So some questions to help you think through this. Think about the scripture. God intends to do something every time his scriptures are read. Do you think about the Bible that way? Do do you think about the Bible that way? When you wake up at 5 a.m. to do your devotional, when you go to bed at 10 a.m., 10 p.m. before you do your devotional, and you you pull out your phone and you read the the Bible verse of the day, what are you expecting there to happen? Are you expecting to encounter power? Or are you expecting to just encounter information? Are you just engaging with a book or are you engaging with the author while you read his book? The second application question would be, are you aware of other voices speaking to you? Even as believers, we have the Bible. We keep it on our sides. It's in our back pocket. I've got hundreds of translations on this. So I, I, could, I could feel safe and say, oh, listen, I could read the Bible in Greek. I could read it in Hebrew. I'm, I'm good to go. But do we recognize that there are other voices speaking to us as well? Can you discern if those voices are leading you to build on sand or to remain on the rock? So do you think of the Bible as God's special revelation? And so that that then takes us to this segment of of, uh, what exactly are the scriptures? So they have power that God speaks and he does things with, with, his, uh, with his words. He accomplishes his pers- purposes with, with, with what he does. But, but, okay, Ronald, but this is a book. So, so what is this? Like, I get it. I mean, there's pages. How, how is this divided? What is it made up of? Um, what are the scriptures and where do they come from? Let's read 2 Timothy chapter 3 and allow scripture to fill in those details for us. Paul writes, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, 
And how from childhood you have been equated with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So, where do the scriptures come from? Where do they come from? Where do they originate from? Well, that passage teaches us that God is the source of the scriptures. That God himself, all scripture is breathed out by God. God himself is the mastermind behind scripture. God is the author of scripture. God is the one who has directed human events to to put pen in the fingers and hands of individual people and and, and led them sovereignly to, to, to have words come out of those pens in such a way that what he speaks is what he, what they, what is said is what he wanted spoken. God is the source of scripture. And as such, Scripture reflects and points to the nature of its author in two key ways. Issues of authority and issues of trustworthiness. Now, I remind you, right? We're, we're a bus tour, right? So we're about to, we're about to take a, a venture, come out of the bus, take a picture of these two ideas, not engage with other really important ideas. If you've done a study uh, of the doctrine of the word of God, there's a number of things we're per, I'm purposely leaving out because we just don't, don't have time. Um, but, but just going to run through this quickly. The, the, the uh, Bible bits, right? What is the Bible made up of? Well, there's 66 books in the Bible. Two major sections. The Old Testament has 39 books. And the New Testament has 27 books. If you're new to the church, if you're new to faith, if you're new to the Bible, you're like, why is one called Old Testament and one called New Testament? Is this one kind of like moldy and crusty and this one, you know, kind of fresh? Uh, is, is this one outdated and this one's kind of the renewed version of it? You know, so should we forget this one and just kind of lean in on this one? And, and no, it, it, th- th- think about the Old Testament and the New Testament as phases, as phases. God is telling a story and in God's story, there were phases. So if you're a fan of like, of like movie trilogies, uh, like the Marvel movies or Star Wars, you, you'll notice that everything, everything in those stories functions in phases, right? You're told a large story through phases. Episodes one through three, Star Wars people. Episodes four through six, Star Wars people. Episodes seven through nine, Star Wars people. Marvel people, you know, phase one, phase two, phase three. That, that's what the Old and New Testament basically refer to. That God is doing things in history in phases, specific things, but these two are connected. That, that's what it means by Old Testament and New Testament, New Covenant, New Promise, Old Phase, New Phase. And there's 40 plus human authors that wrote the scripture. Now, it, it, it's interesting to understand that, that we do not believe that the scriptures were written this way, that the apostle Paul was just kind of walking around the streets of Corinth and then he got kind of struck by a lightning bolt and he entered this weird trance, his eyes rolled in the back of his head and, and all of a sudden he woke up an hour later and he looked at the wall and the wall was written in language he didn't understand and somehow that became the scriptures. Um, that's not what we believe took place. So the word that's used there is inspired, that God in an incredible and mysterious act uh, um, utilized the, the very uh, personality characteristics, uh, intellectual prowess of, it, of the authors of these books, but superintended everything these, these individuals wrote. So God, God worked it in such a way that if you read, for example, the letters of Paul, you'll notice that the letters of Paul sound nothing like the letters of the Apostle John. You'll notice that. It's like this author is this, but the words that are, that, that, that are being spoken are the very words of God. But ultimately, the Bible is one grand story. And the story of the Bible is this. God intends to reconcile humanity through the work of Jesus Christ for his glory. So from Genesis chapter 1 to Revelation chapter 22, this is what the Bible is about. God working his sovereign purpose for the purposes of his glory that includes the reconciliation of sinful mankind to himself. And in that process, as you engage the Bible, you'll notice something about the Bible. You'll notice something that the Bible makes pretty clear, but that it also assumes. The Bible assumes a position of authority. 
As you read the Bible, the Bible is going to make claims about itself and about what it says that sound very much like this is the position on this, this is the position on that. This is the way to go, this is not the way to go. It, it assumes authority. It presents itself as an authoritative document. Now, why is that? Well, again, it comes from God. And if God is his author and God is the ultimate authority in the cosmos and these are his words, therefore, it just assumes that it's going to be authoritative as well. So look at Second Peter chapter 1 with me. Second Peter chapter 1 says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when we received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. That's a reference to the, the Old Testament scriptures. To which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from one, someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So we, we glean at least three things from this passage. This, this claim of authority. First is that God spoke the scriptures and that the scriptures reference themselves as the objective uh, standard for, for truth and, 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 and faith in God. The objective standard for truth and faith in God. Peter references, he's speaking to a group of Christians scattered all throughout an area of the world. And he tells them, hey guys, listen, we did not follow cleverly devised myths. What we have set our hearts to is an objective reality that this prophetic word more fully confirmed that you yourselves would do well to pay attention to. So scripture appeals to an authority that it, it contains. The second thing we learn from this passage quickly is that while personal experience is important, the foundation for um, authority in matters of faith and life is outside of us. It's interesting that, that in that passage, Peter recalls an experience where three apostles are taken up to uh, the Mount of Transfiguration, where they get to witness this incredible supernatural act of God being, of Christ being somehow transfigured, uh, get, get a glimpse into what Christ would look like in his glorified state. And, and, and they, this is what they're describing. It's like, hey, we didn't follow cleverly devised myths, but we experienced something. We saw something. We were on the mountain when all of a sudden Jesus looks like a lightning bolt. And then Elijah and Moses, who were dead, show up in front of him. We saw that. So personal experience matters. But it's interesting that they don't take that, and from that, they develop their own ideas about how to come to God. That they don't take this experience that they, that they experienced and, and use that as the reference point to go about and explain how you come to know God, what God is like, what, what doctrine should be, uh, how, how, what we have to do to get right with God. That was important, but they appeal to the authority of something objective outside themselves. That was good, but we have something better. We have something more sure. But again, something else shows up here that I referenced earlier in the sermon. Cleverly devised myths. Once again, scripture is presenting this idea that you are going to encounter voices outside of your own that are going to seek to influence you. Claims about faith, claims about religion, claims about um, what it means to know and love and come to approach God. You know, if you, if you, if you fly into um, New Orleans airport, depending, I guess, where, where you're coming from, you will, you will typically fly over subdivisions, right? And, and fr from the top, all the houses look the same. 
right? If you've ever flown an airplane and you fly over a subdivision, you look down and all the houses look the same. They all look the same. The statement that Peter is making here is a statement of exclusivity. That there is something specific about God and faith in God and the contents involved in faith in God that is unique to what the Bible presents. That is not shared. That is not cookie cutter like those subdivision houses. So if Christianity were a house and a subdivision, it should look different than all of them. This is what's being said. And Paul picks this up in Romans chapter 10. In verse 11, where he says, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. And then he continues, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless you are, they are sent? As it is written, just appeal after appeal after appeal to the authority of scripture. But, they, but then he finishes saying, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So as you build your house on the rock, part of, part of the life that you are building will involve your interaction with God. Where did you get those ideas from? What, what, what do you appeal to in terms of authority to help you distinguish between, between what, what spiritual rooms should make up your house? What, what type of spiritual activity should, should, repre- should be represented in your house? What do you look to? Do you look to tradition? Do you look to family experiences? Do, do you look to your own self? It's interesting, over the past 15 years, just about sociologists have seen a trend that the past 15 to 20 years have given uh, the rise of, of a new social group called the nuns. N- not the N-U-N-S, but the N-O-N-E-S, the nuns. These are people who fill out uh, um, uh, surveys, uh, population surveys, and when they're asked, uh, what faith are you? Are you Protestant? Are you Roman Catholic? Are you Muslim? Are you whatever? They, they, they fill, they check the, the, the box on the bottom that says none. The rise of the nuns. And in, in America, the West, has secularized to such a degree where, where the nuns, people who don't recognize any association with anything spiritual uh, behind them or b- b- before them, however, they still have ideas about faith. This is the most interesting thing. That this generation is not disconnected from faith, this, this generation is not, not desiring faith. They're wanting to kind of make their own. And some of this is understandable, by the way. Some, some of this is reflected in, in disenfranchisement that comes with, with looking at how major um, religious groups have, have shown up in important categories. So some of that is un- understandable. But, 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 but the idea that, that, that disenfranch- disenfranchisement creates a vacuum... It leads to disconnection from historic and universal principles. And the result of that is a general trust to all, to all, to all appeals of authority. So anything that sounds authoritative, anything that sounds like, hey, listen, this is how things are, are to be done. The, the, the generation I'm part of and the generation after me just, just is, is allergic to it. We, we respond to it in such a way that, no, I don't want to consider it. If you're going to build your house on the sand, on, on, on the rock of Christ, what are you going to appeal to when it comes to authority about spiritual matters? Where are you going to go? Are you going to listen to external voices? Are you going to listen to your own voice? Or are you going to listen to what the Bible suggests is the authority on such matters? The second connection with... Um, Authority is that the Bible makes claims about matters of life. So the, the, the Bible just d- doesn't just make claims of authority on, on God and an exclusivity of faith in Christ to come and be reconciled with God. So the Bible is not just a religious book, not just a spiritual book. That The Bible also makes claims about certain dynamics of life. So a case study for this of competing claims of authority, uh, I, I put this in your outlines, China, climate change, the Bible, and babies. China, climate change, the Bible, and babies. 
Now, I love babies. I think babies are awesome. I think they're cute. Um, I just, I love babies. Um, China has an interesting history with babies. If, if you are of a certain age, you'll remember in the 1970s where China instituted a one-child policy for its, its, uh, its country. So the communist re- regime quite literally enforced its authority on people and said, you are only allowed to have one child. And, and the, the, what, 40, 50 years later, the results of that are, have been catastrophic. So much so that a few weeks ago, a few weeks ago, a report was released where China reversed its stance. A few years ago, or about a decade ago, they had upped it to two children. But a few weeks ago, they've now allowed for couples to have up to three, three, three children. So what's the point there? That a totalitarian regime apparently thinks that it has the authority to engage with procreation with the value of human dignity, making statements about babies, climate change. Uh, last week, I read an article in, in, in the New York Times. And again, if you're, if you're of a certain age, you remember this, right? You remember in the, in the early 70s, there was a massive movement, uh, 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 the, the population boom. Y- y- y'all remember that? Population boom where in, in the 70s, there was this fear that the world was getting overpopulated and food was going to run out. And, and, and the, the, how, how do you fix that? You stop having babies because humankind is the cancer to the planet. Do you all remember? This is in the 70s, right? But that has also come back as well. And so recently, there's, there, there's entire movements in, in, in cl- climate scientists and climate advocates where they, they see that the, the, pr- the primary uh, uh, authoritative uh, 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 body in terms of procreation is, is, is the earth. That, that we can't defy, you know, whatever the earth can hold. And so, and so we've got to limit human reproduction because it's going gonna, it's gonna to make the planet explode or something. Now, two different claims, but, but they both speak to an idea. Now, stick with me. What does the Bible have to do with that? What does the Bible have to do with babies? Did you know that the Bible has a position on babies? Did, did, did y'all know that? That the Bible has a position on procreation. What does God tell Adam and Eve? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Ain't that interesting? You've got three very different positions on one topic that seems random, but it's not. Three loud voices, totalitarian regime, modern social dynamics of culture and, and, and uh, uh, um, climate issues, and the scriptures. Each presenting an authoritative claim on an issue of life. And they're all very different. So when you read the Bible, you're going to encounter things like that. The only point I'm trying to make here is that there are competing voices that claim authority. Are you aware of this? Are you aware that when you flip through your Facebook page, when when you go on Instagram, when you read the news, when you read the newspaper, when you see a TV show, there are competing claims of authority. You are being presented with, this is right, this is wrong. This is how it should be done. This is how it not should be done. This is what ought to be pursued. This is what not ought to be pursued. Do you have your bearings? Do you know these things? Well, Ronald, how can we know? Right here. Right here. Read your Bibles. Now, I I wish I could have a whole sermon on that. Um, I don't. uh, But I want to encourage you. And and I I, I mean this. um, Because this point is massive. This point is absolutely massive in our current cultural moment. So I would point you to Keith's sermon last week. The, the, the second page of his notes deal with this issue in, in depth. So if you were not here last Sunday, if you have not heard the sermon, uh, Keith's sermon of June 13, part two of the Foundations of Life, please listen to it because there's, there's valuable things. Because we're, we're, we're in a season, we're in a, a, in a cultural moment that we're grappling with important matters. It matters like babies. Matters like personal identity, personhood, morality, justice, love, health, our future. How do we deal with our past? How do we as a society do with our sinful past? How, how, how do we pursue justice? How do we respond to injustice? There's a whole lot in culture right now that's appealing to authority. That's saying, you do things this way, you do things that way. Are you prepared? Do you know 
where you stand, not on social issues, on biblical issues. So let me encourage you, read your Bible. And connected to this point is the idea of, is the Bible trustworthy? Is the Bible trustworthy? In my experience, this issue has changed over the past, I don't know, 15 years, Keith, 15, 20 years, where where there was a movement that sought to to undermine the, the, the veracity of the Bible, the, the truthfulness of Scripture, because things about contradictions, the Bible saying one thing, but saying something else in the other spot, uh, uh, pursuing archaeological discoveries that so-called prove that the Bible is not true. That, that seems to have gone away. What's risen behind it is, 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 is not an idea of, does the Bible actually say, but the idea of, why would God do that? That second engagement with scripture is what I'm encountering more and more when I talk to people. And, and, and there is a doctrine related to scripture that directly addresses that. And we know that normally as the doctrine of inerrancy. What does that mean? The doctrine of inerrancy. The doctrine of inerrancy simply means that, that scripture teaches truth and only truth. That's all that doctrine means. That when you read the Bible, you are encountering not a truth, not some truth, not mostly truth, but you are encountering truth. Because its author is true. Therefore, a particular temptation that you guys are going to discover when you approach the Bible is you're, you're going to see this sneak up. You're going to read a passage, you're going to read a section of scripture, and it's not going to sit well with you. It's not going to sit well with you. You're going to object to it, not because it's not accurate, but because you may not think it's good. Because you, you, you believe that something immoral or unjust is being presented or preserved here. Now, did you know that the Bible teaches that? Did you know that, that the Bible presents that as the number one reason why humanity fell apart? If you go back to the garden and you, and you visit the conversation that Satan has with, with Eve, how does he start? Did God really say? You remember that? Hey, hey Eve, did, did God really say that you, could not, that you could not eat of anything? That that one tree was the only tree? So he starts with the factual. Is God accurate? Like, was he confused? That that doesn't take him anywhere. What takes him somewhere with Eve is he pulls on her heart, on her trustworthiness towards God. No, you don't get it. God didn't say that. See, God's keeping something from you, Eve. See, he knows that if you eat of that fruit, that's actually good for you. So just don't listen to the old dude. I mean, he's got him a bad day. He's, you know, he's, he's created, so he's tired, kind of fluked out. So, so it's okay. Let's, let, 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 let you, you determine what is good and wrong in this situation. You become the arbiter of, of objective morality in that moment. That's how her heart is won. And so how do you fight that? You fight that by trusting in God. Again, we are influenced there's an entire movement of people online that make a lot of money, millions of millions of dollars. And you know, do you know what their names are? Influencers. That's what they do. They don't do anything but influence. And apparently, that's important to people. And it's important to big companies. And it's important to, to finances. So all that to say, you and I are influenceable. Is that even a word? We're influenceable. I'm Hispanic. I make up words all the time. But, but we're, we're, we're in, we, there's influence that comes to us. You fight that by trusting in the Lord and his truthfulness with Scripture. So two application points to this um, section. Number one, do you recognize that you are not immune to the external, to the influence of external voices? Do, do you recognize that about yourself? We are not immune to the influence of voices outside of us speaking into us, wanting to steer us in one direction or steer us in another direction. And number two, do you recognize that you are not immune to the influence of internal voices? You yourself are going to have certain instincts, 
certain gravitational pulls to certain ideas. How do we fight that? Where, where, where do we get our bearings? The word of God. We trust its authority because we trust the good God who wrote it. Now, finally, what does this mean for you? Matthew chapter 4 presents an interesting engagement between Jesus and Satan. Matthew chapter 4 verse 1 says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus is making a statement that resonates with all of us. Every single person in this room, everyone watching online, we all recognize that our lives are a lot more than what we put in our mouth and what goes into our stomach. So we get that first part of man shall not live by bread alone. We don't want to live by bread alone. There are things inside of us. There are ideas and inclinations of the heart that we want to live for. And, and if, if I were to flatten out the human experience to four ideas, every human being wants to live uh, uh, um, pursuing answers to four basic ideas. Ideas of origin, ideas of meaning, ideas of morality, and ideas of destiny. Ideas of where do we come from? Why are we here? Ideas of, of meaning. What does this all matter? Do I matter? Ideas of mo morality. What's good? What's bad? Ideas of destiny. What's going to happen when I die? What's going to happen in, in my future? Every human being is engaging with these ideas. Every human being lives their lives influenced by this idea or wanting to be influenced by finding the truth of those ideas worked out in their lives. The scriptures recognize that. And not only do they recognize that, but they provide the most satisfying answer to those four ideas. They make certain claims about those four ideas. But again, another example of external voices. Now, you know, Keith gets his, his you know, ideas about, about social uh, development and cultural progress by reading books. Uh, and and I'm, I'm not smart as he is, right? So I get my ideas by watching movies, right? I, 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 I take temperature of the culture by watching movies. Uh, and there's a reason for that because movies are, are, are cultural artifacts that, that, that describe certain positions, certain ideas that are valued or that are wanting to be valued in culture, right? And so recently a movie came out that I found very interesting. Um, how many of you remember a Disney movie called 101 Dalmatians, right? There's an evil character in that movie, right? Cruella DeVille, right? And even her name, Cruella DeVille. And, and, and Disney had clear categories of right and wrong. I mean, my goodness, she kills puppies and she wears their fur as, this is just as bad as it gets, right? Well, there's been a pattern in Hollywood over the past five to ten years of revisiting origin stories where characters are, 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 are the, the, the question is asked, hey, what were they like before they became bad? What were they like when, like, what was Cruella DeVille like before she became Cruella DeVille? Well, that's exactly the premise of this movie called Cruella DeVille. Well, you get the origin story. And this is not the only movie in this category, by the way. Uh, a few years ago, um, a movie called Joker came out. Uh, years before that, another Disney movie called Maleficent came out. The, the story of the, the, the bad person, I think it's Snow White. At, at any rate, these aren't just meant as entertainment. The, the stories are being told. Narratives are being presented to you. I don't think they want to get in your mind, and, but that's, that's, that's not where I'm going. I'm saying that people are trying to wrestle with these questions. And as you watch the Cruella de, DeVille movie, it's interesting what happens. The, the, the human condition is redefined. The experiences of people are used to explain how they became and who they, what they became and who they are going to be. 
And so in Cruella's story, her origin, she comes from a place of pain and victimization. That's where she comes from. She had a horrible mom that abused her and that was just absolutely horrible and wicked. And, and, and that's her setting. Well, her life then finds meaning, that second question, in responding to that pain. So, so she, she has this gritty defiance that characterizes her, that leads her to, to this sense of, of pursuing li- liberation through expression. And she becomes this avant-garde artist type of person. Then her, her, her morality then becomes whatever she makes it. And so she lives as a counterexample of whatever is happening around her. But the saddest thing about the Crillardville story is that she is now bound to that story. Because her past defined her future. And now because of her story and how she came to be, there's no way out of that story. So the only way she can do life now is giving over to herself and what happened to her. That's a common theme in today's culture. Did you know that scripture speaks to that very setting? Scripture speaks to issues of pain and victimization and identity and, and, and issues of what's happened to us and where we can go. So and embedded in Cruella DeVille, embedded in that story and in many, many other stories is this absolutely dangerous idea that what people need is to be understood. That our greatest need as human beings is to be understood. If you can only understood where I come from, Ronald, if you can only know where I come from, that's what I need. Scripture offers a different narrative. Scripture says there is a God who understands where you come from. But there is a God who's willing to redeem you from where you come from. This is the narrative of scripture where it says you don't need to be understood. You need to be saved. You need to be rescued from what's happened. And it offers you a life that is detached and disconnected from the limiting factors of your origin story. It offers you eternal life. It offers you a newness of life. It it offers you what Psalm chapter 1 talks about. The psalmist says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Our statement of faith puts this idea like this. And I'll close with this. As we devote ourselves to God's word, we commune with God himself and are fortified in faith, sanctified from sin, strengthened in weakness, and sustained in suffering by his unchanging revelation in scripture. This is what the scriptures are. Pastor Keith is going to come up and... and, um, you may be surprised to know, as I was this morning, that it's Father's Day. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh yeah, it is Father's Day. Um, so Keith, would you come up, man, and lead us in, in a time where we can care for the dads, pray for them, be stirred to use the scriptures as a means of finding life. Um, let me just say, Ronald, first, you have helped all of us as dads this morning. I can think of no greater aid in our lives as dads than to have the word of God to help us to be the men of God that God has called us to be. And you just made that more clear to us today. So, bro, thank you very much for that. Yeah, you can clap for that. Amen. All right, we're going to take a moment this morning. We don't have, as Aaron mentioned, there's no flamethrowers or axes available on the way out today, but uh, we have something better than that. We have the power of God through prayer to actually impart something to dads today that you don't have to remember where you put it. God's going to put it in you by the Holy Spirit. And so we want to pray for our dads this morning. So if you're a dad here Uh, Could you stand up? Those around you who are 
part of your tribe or not, part of your church family. Could perhaps just gather close by and could take a moment just to be praying for you. As Ronald mentioned, we live in a very confusing world, don't we? Not sure the world even has this whole father idea straight anymore. Should it exist? Does it exist? Has it got the right label on it? What do we expect from it? But you know, we get the idea of fathers from the Bible. The Bible gives us the idea that you should be playing this role. You didn't make it up. Your parents, somebody else before you didn't make it up. God made this up. The word of God says in Ephesians chapter six, and it would be filled with instructions for fathers. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and mother. I'm not sure all the other holidays on our calendars are justifiable, that we should or shouldn't be celebrating them, but I can make a case for this one. And I can make a case for Mother's Day because the Bible actually calls on all of us to honor fathers and mothers. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. So all of us get instructed. That's why we're praying for you fathers this morning. All of us are instructed to do this. But then it says to fathers, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So then the Bible turns to fathers and it gives you a task and it gives you responsibilities and it calls you to do something. And how many of you guys know the second God says, do this, you have the opportunity to not do that now. Everybody in touch with that? The second God puts value on something, you and I now have the ability to devalue it. The second God says this is important, we have now the opportunity to fail at it as whatever that was supposed to be, we are aware, we turned it into something else. And that's what makes Father's Day and Mother's Day a little bit of a weird moment, doesn't it? Because we highlight how important this is and then we all get in touch with the fact that I could have done better. I could be a better dad. Or can I just tell you, that's, that's a given in the Bible. Can I just tell you from the moment we exit the Garden of Eden, everything could be better. Everything could be better. Don't let that be the period at the end of your sentence. The Bible keeps speaking. It keeps speaking into lives that could be better. Yes, they could. But today's not a day that, that we're seeking to clarify how condemned you should be. Today is a day to honor fathers. The way the Bible calls us to do that, we're called to honor fathers. And did you know that Paul knew that those fathers wouldn't be perfect fathers in Ephesians chapter six? He didn't write that by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit with the idea that this is for perfect dads. No, he knew there were none. Yet they were still to be honored. And so this morning, can we honor what God has done by creating fathers and giving them to us in families. And so we got a lot of dads here this morning that are standing. You just look around. Maybe you can just draw near to some of these dads and, and get in their business by laying hands on them. I'm going to turn my own family loose because you guys don't need to come up here. But there's some dads standing here who don't have anybody standing with them. Uh, but they're dads. Could you just get, gather around them and lay hands on them? And Come on, I've got to move here. About to teach on body ministry here probably in August. Everybody gets to be a part of the power of God. These people matter. If you've had a father in your life, you've either been excited or disappointed or a mixture of both. And these guys are that in somebody else's life. So they need prayer. They need us standing with them. All right, let's go before God's throne together. Lord, when you created humanity, Lord, right there from the very outset was this role that you installed called a father. It's not a result of the fall. It's not an accident. It's not a human invention. It is your design. So Lord, today we honor your design as it's revealed by your word. 
Lord, we don't take cues from the culture today to tell us, should there even be fathers? Maybe there should just be two mothers. Maybe there should be something besides fathers. No, no, no. We take our cues from you, Lord. You said, honor fathers. And we do that today. We honor your idea that there should be fathers. We honor your call, Lord, that you have called each of us who are standing today into this sacred role. And it is sacred. It's holy. It does some things in people's lives that nothing else can do. And oh Lord, how that convinces us of how much we need you as fathers. And we stand together with these men. Lord, men who have other people in their lives looking to them. Lord, men who know that there are needs around them that they often feel insufficient for. But Lord, we join with others who have stood before a throne of grace to find help. Help, Lord, help us in this call. Because we are not sufficient in ourselves to consider anything is coming from ourselves. But our sufficiency is from God. So, Lord, today on Father's Day, we give the gift of sufficiency to each of these men, Lord. There is a sufficiency that comes to us by the Holy Spirit. It's full of power. It's full of truth revealed by your word. It's full of the tenacity of our Heavenly Father who never quits, who never gives up, who's faithful, who's at work in our lives. Even when we're prodigals and we're far away, you are looking for us. You are pursuing us. Your heart is right toward us. Lord, that's how you are to us as a father. So Lord, what great ground we stand on today as we pray for these men. Lord, that you would impart yourself to them. Lord, surely the nearness of God is our good. So, Lord, for every father who is standing here, Lord, and I stand with them as a man full of questions on how good a job I've done or not done, awareness of where I've fallen short often, desperately in need of your grace in my life for the people that I love. Lord, impart yourself to each of these fathers in fresh ways, in strengthening ways, in gracious ways, so that in the days ahead, Lord, they may live lives that impart you to those around them. There is no greater gift and there's no greater call, Lord, that dads here today would impart the father of all fathers, the living God into their children's lives. Lord, let that be the grace that goes with them as they are fathers to their children and in their families. Lord, we honor them today on Father's Day in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Guys, have a great, happy Father's Day. Pick up your power tools on the way out.